Now, as you open your Bibles up, make sure you go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, as we do that, I mean, as we're thinking about all that we've learned in 1 Peter, um, I feel like Peter is a conductor of an orchestra. And he has this beautiful piece that he has put together, and it has parts or stages to it. And just like a great piece of music written, out there comes a crescendo part. And the crescendo part kind of leads you right into the main section. And it's the one that you you want to sing out. It's the one that you really, you know, we've been working with our Christmas choir, and, and that's, that's coming along, excited about that. And we have a few little parts in our songs that have these forte and double forte, and that just means you sing it you know, loud and loudest. That's where we're at. This is that. And it just moves you to the top, and it takes you to the mountain top, to the strength of the, the movement of the music. That's where we're at. Now, I have to admit, as I was going through this, this um, last week, um, there's so much here that I'm not sure how to tell you at all. I, I really don't. I, I mean, it, it's connected. To be able to say it, all that, I, that needs to be said, and then to make it connected briefly. And so I'm going to do my best to do that very thing. So um, I can almost guarantee over these two pieces that we are going to go through that you're going to have more questions than answers. And as you do, feel free to not only share with your flock group, but come to me and uh, share. And I'd love to hear either what you're learning or the questions that you have. And um, and then uh, maybe we can have a, a great discussion about what's here. Now let's start with the title that I chose for this part of the study. Um, Peter started this thought back in verse 11, and it really goes through verse 25. And here's what I believe verses 21 through 25 are all about. And it's right there at the top of your notes, the creed of the suffering Christ. The creed of the suffering Christ. It's all about the sufferings of Christ, but in particular, his suffering on the cross. When we say creed, what we mean by that is statement of belief. The belief that holds everything all together. The core of it, the main thing, the the glue uh, conviction, the glue belief. You remember back in verse 20 talking about a Christian who suffers for doing what is right. And that leads us to this. I mean, if, 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 if this is the creed of the suffering Christ, how do you respond when you suffer for doing the right thing? You remember, Peter said, you patiently endure it. Now, Peter knows that's not an easy thing to do, and so he gives us the example to get us there. And maybe for some of you, when we're going through this, and as we're going through this, you might say to yourself, yeah, but I'm not Jesus. 
I get that. I understand that. But it's still our example. And it's still what we need in order to get to where we need to get to. In the context of suffering. Jesus Christ and his sufferings. The example that is of Jesus suffering for doing right. Do it like Jesus. That's the message. Now what is the creed of the suffering Christ? Well, I'll give it to you in one word and then we'll see if we can kind of, you know, break that down. Glory. Jesus suffered unjustly for one reason and he had this reason always in his sights and it was always in front of him. He did it for glory. And I suppose the world has the message right, just they have it right in the wrong way. And when the world says that we should do all things for glory, they're right. It's just they have the wrong glory in mind. Jesus suffered unjustly for glory. And so the creed then is this. Suffering is the pathway to glory. Now, having said that, look with me at verses 21 to 25. And let's try and understand this first by putting the text in front of us. And then we'll work our way through it. For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Amen. F.B. Meyer called this section the footprints of the flock. I like that. That made me want to preach. But that was his, you know, sermon title. So I liked it. Jesus' main message when he came and called disciples to him was, follow me. We know that, right? As you read all throughout, I mean, um, you can read John. You can read Matthew. Follow me. F.B. Meyer But this following of the shepherd and bishop of our souls involves suffering. It becomes us to mark well those footprints as they lead down into the dark valley ere they climb upward to the resurrection and ascension heights. So in other words, before resurrection and ascension, there must be the dark valley 
That has to be where the footprints go. If we are to be like Christ. Jesus was after his men following him from the first to the last days he was with his men training them. John 13, I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. In other words, I keep giving you examples. Follow me. Follow me. He keeps saying that. Follow me. He still says that to you and I. Follow me. Jesus said that after washing their feet. And now Peter says, I want you to keep following Jesus' example. You say, example of what? Of suffering unjustly. Suffering unjustly. Now as we come to 1 Peter, you see two major areas of a Christian's makeup that Peter focuses on. The blessings that he has in Christ. And we talked about that, that there are blessings in Christ. And we, t- we call them privileges. When a person is put in Christ, he has certain privileges, certain blessings that are just amazing that they don't go away. They're not earned meritoriously. Right? They're not, all right, I'll bless you now, but be careful. I might come back and take them away. There's a second thing that Peter has been focusing on, and that is that Christian living will mean suffering. You can see that. It's all throughout Peter. All throughout Peter. Unmistakable. We've showed you this. Once you start to crank out obedience to God, the world will notice and the world will hate you for it. Listen, the world cannot stand by holiness and righteousness and be indifferent. It cannot be silent. It will be critical. It will be harsh. It will point the finger. And eventually it will even make up things to make it seem like what you're doing in living the way you're living, is uncalled for. You're going to face pressure against living like Jesus wants you to. You know, you would think with all the privileges that we have from Christ and all the blessings that we have in Christ and our salvation, that we would stand out to the world in a positive way. You would think that they would recognize Matthew 5, uh, you know, 13, where Jesus said, you're the light of the world, you're the salt of the earth, and salt is used to preserve. And so when we live for Christ and we proclaim Christ, we're actually helping the world be preserved in a way. In other words, it gets benefit from us, but they don't see it that way. Actually, the opposite is true. They hate you for it. I like how John MacArthur summed up the Christian life. Listen, the Christian life is a call to glory through the path of suffering. Let me say that again. It's so helpful. The Christian life is a call to glory through the path of suffering. 
let me say it this way, through the path of any kind of suffering. All suffering. All suffering. Why is that? I mean, if you're like me, you kind of are saying, well, does it have to be suffering? Can it be something else? Can it be just like a test or something like that or some trial that I do one time and I go, okay, I got through it. You know. No. No. It has to be this way. Why? Two reasons. There will be suffering for two reasons. There will be suffering because of who we are and there will be suffering because of where we are set. That's First Peter 2, 9 through 10. Look at it again. We're a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. That's who we are. And then you get to verse 11. Strangers of the world. Why? Because, because we make a big deal about how you're supposed to live. How we live. How we live matters. That's why. Abstaining from lusts matters to us. It's a big deal to us. And I will say this. In your accountability with one another, when a, brother, when a professing brother or sister tries to say it's not a big deal, they are living counter or they're claiming something that's counter-Christian. Abstaining from lust matters to us. And we told you this world has a course set by Satan. No wonder James tells us not to be friends with it, right? John says, don't love it. I mean, we're strangers in this hostile environment. And so you go and you live out following Christ and you have these standards and it's going to do something. Have you ever noticed, and I've noticed this too, that I mean, one time, in fact, actually, I'll never forget this. I was made aware of a very close uh, friend and of, of struggle that this close friend was having and and uh, decided I would call this close friend and, hey, you're having a struggle and everything, deep depression and all that kind of stuff. So I began to share the gospel with this close friend and, and it was actually the first time I'd ever done this verbally. To which this friend said to me, you're always preaching at me. Always preaching at me. Quit it. I don't want to be here your holier than thou message. And I thought to myself, wow, this is the first time I've ever shared the gospel with this person. So clearly they have been, they've received something before my words got to this person. We are strangers in a hostile environment and we're hated for it and you put holiness in it and we instantly become counterculture. And so the question for us is, how are we to handle the heat that comes from the world? How are we to handle the criticism and the heat that they give us? Well, there's a key word back in First Peter 2.20 that helps us get to our section. Now, I want you to see it again. So look at verse 20. First Peter 2.20. But if when you do what is right 
and suffer for it. You patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. This finds literally grace from God. This finds, you could even say the word reward. Or you could use the word glory. Grace that lifts you up to where God is. Whatever suffering comes your way, when you patiently endure it, you get God's grace. And if that suffering is because, if, if it's coming unjustly, you get God's grace. And then you add verse 21 and it connects us right into this next section. For you have been called for this purpose. What purpose? To suffer. And then he says, Christ left you an example to follow. What is the example? Listen, of how to suffer unjustly in your pursuit of glory, found in God alone. This is it. This is how you do it. People at my work are making claims about me. They're not true. You need this. My family members are saying things about me. It's not true. You need this. I have a spouse. I have friends. And they're starting to say things about me. And they're not true. And I just feel like I want to get together with them and set the record straight and clear the air and all that kind of stuff. Well, before you do that, will you take time to work through 1 Peter 2? Before you retaliate and say the thing that you want to say and do the thing that you want to do and bring out that manipulation that makes you look like the good guy when when they're, they're painting you to be the bad guy, will you please work through 1 Peter 2? Before you think to yourself, my spouse says this and does this, and it's not right. And I'm going to clear that air. Will you work yourself through this section first before you decide to do that? How to suffer unjustly for the grace that God alone gives. Because if you don't do it right, you're going to miss an opportunity to grow in grace. See, how do I do this then? We have to see and understand the suffering of Christ and Peter gives us three ways to do it. So let's look at the first one this morning. Number one, and we're going to see, you have to see Christ in three ways. First way, you have to see Christ as our picturesque standard. As our picturesque standard. Verses 21 to 23. Now this is going to be as far as we're going to get to this morning. So if you're thinking, wait, Oh, you didn't get to two and three. It's all right. Relax. We'll get there. Uh, but number one this morning. Now, will you notice the word call in verse 21? For you have been called. Beloved, the first place to start with is here. Is it acknowledging and admitting that suffering is our calling? And it is our special calling as believers. In fact, 
It is ours and ours alone. This is the verse 9. Him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous, marvelous light. Now that is a salvation call and that's the same calling here. And here Peter connects that call to suffering. And when you connect verse 9 to verse 12, you understand you were called into this salvation to be a stranger inside the world with your godly behavior and that the world will react to that godly behavior and be the cause of your suffering. See, That's where the suffering comes from. Now, I believe he also has in mind other kinds of suffering, but in particular he has in mind, this suffering that the world is going to bring to us. And so when Peter said, called you into his marvelous light, it means he has called you into glory. So you see what we're saying here? He's called you into glory. He's called you into suffering. That must mean that the way to get to glory is through suffering. That's her path. It includes that. He say, man, does it have to be that way? Can it be a different thing, you know? It does have to be that way. You say, why? Because it pleases God. Why does it please God? I'm going to show you. Because at this point, you might be thinking, man, does he just get joy in seeing me be miserable and go through it? No, he's actually doing it for your good. I'll show you. Look at, we'll go to the end here. Go to chapter 5, verse 10. You can see where he's going. Oftentimes, I mean, I'm one of those guys, I don't mind opening the book up to the very end and reading it and going, okay, so that's where it's going. All right, now that I know that, let's go back and read it. But maybe you're not like that. Maybe you think, oh, no, no, don't spoil it, right? Are you one of those types? That's okay. It's good. We're all different. But I'm spoiling it for you. Chapter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while. You say, how long is a little while? He doesn't say. But you know what's good about this? He says it calls it a little while, right? So, oh, phew. So whatever suffering I'm going through, you know, the Lord just calls it a little while. See, so you can feel good about that. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You get all those things. And you know what you get it from? Suffering. And you get it no other way but through suffering. Now, by the way, he's not, not, we shouldn't take away from here, oh, just go out, start finding suffering, right? Looking for it. It'll find you, okay? You don't have to worry about that. And by the way, it's, a, it's something that uh, he gives to you, so that tells me it's a gift. And so he'll give it to you when exactly you need it. And so God is using the suffering to grow you up, to perfect you, to confirm you as a believer. To strengthen you as a follower. To establish your testimony as someone to believe in. It's, it's your testimony that he's establishing. 
So that's the process. Back to verse 20. And we need to take it patiently, to patiently endure it. That's a very important word. Some of us are ready to jump right out of it. It's like, okay, all right, I'll give it five minutes. I'll give it a half a day, whatever. He says, be patient. One of the things to pray for, you know, is patience. When you are in suffering, pray for patience. And again, a reminder of what it is that we're enduring. We are enduring suffering unjustly. It is a perfecting process. And there's one other thing that it is. It is a calling. That's what he says in verse 21. We need to understand this word calling a little deeper. And what the person that helped me kind of take a little bit more of a deeper dive was R.C. Sproul. And I want you to hear what R.C. Sproul has to say. Quote, Why does God give his smile of approval on those who suffer patiently when they are victims of unjust treatment? Peter gives us the answer. It is our vocation. When God calls us to a task, it is our duty to obey it. It is commendable when we suffer unjustly and bear the pain and patience because God has called us to that. End quote. Ooh. The thing that really uh, took me was that word vocation. Sproul calls this a vocation. Why does he do that? Listen, Sproul goes on to say, Suffering becomes bearable when we understand that we are in that state by the providence of God. And therefore, at that time, it is our vocation. The word vocation means calling. From the Latin root, voco. If we fall ill with a terminal disease, we can curse the fates that have brought us to that stage, or we can see it as the providence of God. There is nothing worse than to suffer pain or grief for no reason, which is why those without Christ are without hope. For them, ultimately life is an experience of futility, But if their souls become captured by the truth of the gospel, they will know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. So there is purpose even in our suffering. Now he gave that statement that I just said to a group in Houston, Texas, of medical people, doctors, to help them understand that even pain and suffering can serve eternal purposes that are glorious. I mean, consider Job. The Lord allows his kids to be taken away, to die, and Job's response, Job 121, the Lord gave, he has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord, right? Job's wife cursed God and died, right? Job to his wife said, shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity? Job 2.10, I like that. He says, sweet wife of mine, 
Let me help you. Let me correct your theology so that you might get on the Lord's side with this. Later in Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Job just kept reminding himself of truth. Job 19, 25, I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. He is going to have his way in the end. So you can fight it or you can join it and embrace it and grow in it. So it's our, vac- our, our vocation. Be careful, I almost said vacation. It's not our vacation. But it is our vocation. You say, but why is it our vocation? I mean, I wish there was more reasoning. Well, there is. Go back to First Peter if you're not there and turn to chapter 1. And go back to verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while. He likes using that word, little while. I like that. Come on, guys, it's just a little while, right? You ever tell it to your kids, how long? How long are we getting until we get there? Just a little while. All right, say, hey, the Lord says, just a little while, right? Okay, so here we go. It, 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 even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Now, suffering has a purpose for growing you now. But listen. Suffering has a purpose for later too. Look at verse 7. So that the proof of your faith, how you suffer, proves that your faith is real, is true, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, here it is, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when? Tomorrow. Nope. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is for praise and glory and honor when Jesus comes back. For eternity. You suffer here because the world hates you. You, God allows it because it does a few things. It confirms your faith. But listen, it also prepares your future. Mark this. You're not just learning patience for this time on earth. You're preparing your capacity to glorify and praise God in heaven. Did you know that? You realize that? Now often we go to James chapter 1 when we think of how to handle suffering, right? Consider it all joy, my brothers. When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. And, and, you know, that's a wonderful section of Scripture. And it's helpful for you to handle trials in the moment, in the now. It tells us about how God uses suffering to grow your character for life on this earth. That's James' point. Peter's point is different. His point is, for preparation for eternity. In other words, the ones capable of giving God the most praise in heaven will be the ones He allowed to go through the most suffering. 
Does that change your perspective? I know it does mine. Let me give you a few passages to help you see that. I feel like I'm telling you some things that um, I think intellectually you can kind of work through, but I think emotionally you kind of are, are not there. I get it. That's why we got to work hard at listening to the scripture. Listen, Second Corinthians 4.17. Paul says this, For momentary light affliction. Boy, I tell you, just you can leave it to Paul. It's momentary and it's light. Come on, guys, right? It's momentary and light. He wasn't making fun of them. He was just helping them understand something. Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That's incredible. Now, when you put this together with James and Peter, what you get is this. Yes, suffering does help you here. There's a, you could say there's a, it's an agent to help us here. It has that in it. It teaches you how to patiently endure. It helps you become more like Christ here, proven character. But it does a second thing. It produces a weight, a weight of glory far beyond anything to compare. It's preparing you and I for glory. This is training school. The suffering you have here is impacting your eternity. Not just what you are capable of today. Strength for now, yes, that's helpful. But way beyond the here and now, it is impacting your future, Paul says. It's incredible. And every time maybe you're going through suffering and you're thinking you wish that it would end, just have this one thought that, you have something that maybe others don't have, and that is a preparation for glory in heaven, praise in heaven, worship in heaven. In Revelation, they say, how long, how long? And the Lord comes back with soon. And then you see them erupt into praise and worship because they get it. They get the connection. In fact, that's why Paul had to include, by the way, verse 18 in that Second Corinthians 4 passage. Listen, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, what are the things seen? They are the things that cause us pain right now. See? Suffering that happens now. The criticisms from people, the insults, the manipulations, the slander, the sarcasm with all the hurting undertones. How about the actual physical pain of going through stuff? I mean, how many that have stayed faithful to the Lord only to have a spouse reject them because they reject Christ? That's painful. Losing a wife, losing a child, battling cancer. All that is painful. But those are things seen. You know what's not seen? 
all the glory that this suffering is producing in heaven. There's a second passage I want to draw your attention to. So turn actually to Matthew 20. This, this sort of illustrates what we're talking about. Turn to Matthew 20. And uh, if you have been a part of our Sunday school class, our, our uh, adult class for the last couple of weeks, you'll, this will be very familiar to you. The sons of thunder, James and John. And I, I love the fact that they're called. I love the fact that John is one of the sons of thunder, but he's also the apostle of love, right? I mean, who could have both of those, you know, monikers, right? Sons of thunder, apostle of love, you know. It almost sounds like a book, right? You know. Faithful disciples of Christ, here we go. And so, you know, mom gets involved. <laughs> See, she sees how faithful they are too. Say, hey, doesn't everybody love my sons? Moms always think that, right? Say, every, I bet everybody just loves my sons, right? And here we go. Mom gets involved. Verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And I love, by the way, I absolutely love the patience and the sweetness of Jesus to come to, to condescend and come down, right? He could have just kind of done one of those deals where he sometimes do, he does with the Pharisees, which is just be silent. You know, I'm going to pretend like I didn't hear this, right? He doesn't do that. And so here we go. He says, uh, well, what do you wish? Command that in your kingdom, let's make this an edict, <laughs> right? Command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. Whoa, that's big, all right? You just went right for it, didn't you, right? We're going to skip all the little stuff and go to the big stuff. What's your wish? Glory, eternal glory. Now, there's a lot we could say and focus on, but here's what connects to First Peter 2. How does a person get such a position like that? I mean, let's be honest. Of all the billions and billions and billions of people that have lived on the earth, historically, there are only two positions. There are two spots. Right and left, right? That's a big, uh, you know, there's going to be a heavy cut right there. I mean, he's like, well, you didn't make the cut. Well, join the other billions upon billions that didn't. In other words, what's the pathway to that? kind of glory what's the pathway to this kind of glory I mean and should we even be thinking about this kind of glory now as you read Matthew 20 will you take notice of the fact that Jesus never corrects her in saying whoa 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 what are you talking about glory for quit doing that doesn't do that no he does point to them to say you ought to think of yourself more as servants That's going to help you in this quest for glory. But he does give an answer. Verse 22. You don't know what you're you're asking. And by that I think Jesus means you really don't know by experience the depth of that question. I mean, your boys are fantastic but they're very 
green. I mean, they're half-baked at best, right? I mean, just yesterday they were wanting to call down fire to blast the Samaritans, okay? Shall we talk about that? And then Jesus says the key thing to the boys. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. Clueless. What cup is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the cup of suffering that will be his in going to the cross. He's talking about the suffering that was to take place at the cross. They have no clue what Jesus is really talking about. Are you kidding me? They didn't even understand the cross. By the time you get, by the way, to two days prior, Jesus said, he literally just about, it was what we talked about this morning in our classes, he really spelled it, he said, uh, I'm going to be crucified, and three days later I will rise again. And you know, remember that when they were running at the resurrection, the ladies told him, hey, there's no body there. They thought somebody had stolen the body. Are you kidding me? How many times does he have to keep telling you, I'm going to rise, I'm going to rise, and they just didn't get it. And they're here sitting there telling Jesus, oh, we can wield, yeah, the cup, no problem. It's talking about suffering. They have no idea what this suffering is. Jesus says, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been market prepared by my Father. Now, what kind of preparation gets a person to this place? The cup of suffering, right? Great suffering, unmatched suffering, suffering unjustly in such a way that you've never, ever experienced. And no one in the history of mankind has ever suffered like Jesus. So no one can say that they've drunk his cup. But Jesus says, in a way, these disciples will. They're going to taste it. But even then it won't matter. Why? Because this position is for those prepared for it. Prepared by whom? The Father. What's the preparation? A certain kind of suffering that the Father has planned for them. You say, why would he do that? For the glory. That's always the pathway to glory. Always. And when we see when we say glory, what we mean by that is the capacity to glorify God. You realize that that's the definition of a Christian, by the way? Mark this. A Christian is defined as one who lives to glorify God alone that is a Christian that's what matters to us now God saved us for that to be that to have that direction for our lives and sin is a deception that keeps you from thinking that that's even valuable you know what's interesting is that we spend so much of our time trying to avoid suffering and that's the thing that unlocks the greater glory 
And by the end of Peter's life, he really understood that. I mean, you can see that not only in this epistle, but, you know, when Peter was facing the death sentence. Do you remember what they told him? He said, all right, you're going to be crucified. And you remember what Peter said? I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. Crucify me upside down. He understood. All right, let's go back to 1 Peter 2.21. For you have been called for this purpose. What purpose? To suffer unjustly. It's our calling. And the principle or the, or the creed in this is that suffering is the pathway to glory. And I guess you could say, no pain, no gain, right? That's literally what this is saying. And verse 21 tells us Jesus suffered as an example for us to follow. Hebrews 2.9, because of the suffering of death by the grace of God, that he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for Jesus, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now since the pathway to glory for Jesus Christ is suffering, our pathway to glory is suffering. And that is Peter's point. Later, in Hebrews 5, 8, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. You say, wait a minute. Made perfect? Hasn't Jesus always been perfect? Yes. So that's not what this means. So what's it saying? Let me explain this. It's really profound. If Jesus is perfect, if he's sinless, how can he learn obedience? It means this. He put his human body through the same rigors of obeying the law that we are called to obey. So he did that. By taking on flesh, he put himself in the position where he would obey the same things that we needed to obey. Now, how does a person grow in obedience? From suffering. From suffering. He perfectly kept his body obeying, and it was hard, okay? I mean, when it says says having been made perfect, it means demonstrating perfection in every temptation he faced, in every trial, in every difficulty, in every instance of where he was hungry or where he was tired, of where he experienced sleeplessness and bodily fatigue that you and I might complain. Jesus never sinned once but learned Obedience, see? That's what it means. Why do it? Why become human? To blaze this path for us. He became perfect to all those who obey Him. Obey Him in what? His commands? Well, yes. But in this context, no. Obey Him in facing the same 
kind of suffering. In other words, obey him in doing the thing that is right when you know you're going to suffer for it and still doing it. You come to Christ and you sign up for this kind of suffering and the promise to you from Hebrews 2.9 is that Jesus will be the source of eternal salvation. Excuse me, from 5.9, Hebrews 5.9. Your suffering will end in a salvation for eternity in heaven. You say, so a person who is a Christian isn't yet saved? No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying your commitment to obeying Christ in suffering makes the statement that we belong to him. And he will keep us saved to the end because he is the source of eternal salvation. In other words, it just becomes encouragement to us. It's another way of saying Philippians 1.6, he who began this work is going to complete it. Now let's go back to our text, 1 Peter 2.21. I keep saying that, huh? All right. What are we called to in salvation? What's our pathway to glory? Unjust suffering. And Jesus was the example that we must follow. And I'm sure that Peter remembered Jesus' words in Matthew 10.24. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? And Peter just simply puts it this way. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Same thing. It's interesting in that Matthew 10 passage, the verse leading into those ones said, whenever they persecute you. So it's both insults and physical persecution. And let me tell you, beloved, it's coming. you're going to be forced to make some decisions that have physical ramifications in the future. I believe it's coming. Unjust suffering was Christ's path to glory. It's ours too. All right, now how is Jesus' death on the cross an example for our suffering? You say, well, I don't have a cross like his. Well, I mean, Jesus did say, take up your cross and follow him, right? So in what way is his suffering our example and what can we learn from it? This, that a person can be walking right, can be filled with the Spirit, can be making himself obedient to Christ in every way conceivable. To obey God and be in his will and still suffer. Oftentimes, I think when we suffer, we, think, we tend to think, what did I do wrong? I did something wrong. I'm sure I did something wrong. What did I do wrong? Somebody tell me. What did Jesus do wrong? And here in this section, it says, he suffered unjustly. That's the example left for you we are called to. So a person can be perfectly righteous and face this kind of suffering. 
Unjust, severe suffering. And the point for us is that Christ, in his death, gave us the standard for what suffering unjustly looks like for us. I was reading Sproul about this, and I believe he makes a great point about the contemporary healing ministry movement of our day. When he says, those who proclaim that God always wills healing. Well, here is a section where God proclaims it is his calling and will for suffering that leads to glory. Why would you want to get out of that? What makes us think that it is God's will for us not to suffer? Here Peter says it is. And in fact, those who are in that movement go so far as to say that it is the devil that brings the suffering. God doesn't want you to have that. What do you do with this verse? It's crazy how, how off we get. Verse 21 says, Jesus left an example. You remember last week, we talked about this word last week. Example, uh, hoopogramos, it, it literally means underwriting. And you remember I told you the, the grammar letters that a, an elementary school age kid was given a, a paper to trace over. That's the idea of this. And so you take your life and you put it over the suffering of Jesus at the cross and you trace your path right over his and you live that way. That's how we're to do this. You follow that standard, that pattern. And then he says, for you to follow in his steps, literally footprints. Follow the footprints. That's literally what it says. Follow the footprints. It is a plural and so therefore indicates a line of footprints in the the sand or the dirt. Jesus in his life and death has put footprints for you to follow so you know how to face unjust suffering. Now you know why in Matthew 4, when the devil was trying to get Jesus to tempt him to avoid suffering while he was saying, "Uh uh-uh. It's an absolute must. It's not only the pathway to the cross, but it's the pathway for those that will follow me forever. And then we go deeper in this. Now remember we told you that Peter being a Jew was always connected to the Old Testament. And so Peter says, let me show you what it's like to follow Jesus in suffering from the Old Testament. What, what, what place in the Old Testament? Isaiah 53. That's the Old Testament picture of the cross. Now, Peter had personal experience of how Jesus suffered. Now he brings out uh, what you might call pastoral experience. He, he knows his Bible. Isaiah 53. Now, in verses 22 to 24, Peter refers to Isaiah 53 over and over and over. You're going to see this. Look at verse 22. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And that right there is Isaiah 53.9. And what's interesting in Isaiah 53.9 is it says, um, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And Peter 
By the time he gets to this, he changes the word violence to sin. You say, how could he do that? Can't mess with the, you know, Old Testament. Well, because actually, interestingly enough, the word for violence actually can be translated to violate. Violence to the law is the idea. So he's not talking about physical violence. He's talking about doing violence to the law. To violate. Now we know that Jesus was sinless. John eight forty six. Jesus said, which one of you convicts me of sin? He said, you can't. He was sinless, right? Hebrews 4.15, tempted in all things yet without sin. Hebrews 7.26, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. You could use 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. It's treated as a sin. 1 John 3.5, in him there is no sin. And earlier in 1 Peter 1.19, a lamb unblemished and spotless. So he changes the word to violence. It means violate. And what he is saying is he had done no violations to the law, no violence to the law. In other words, he didn't transgress one single law. And that makes sense when you think about the context of 1 Peter 2. He suffered unjustly because he didn't violate a single law. And you look at all the trials Jesus faced, and they couldn't condemn him in one single way. You know, they had to make stuff up, didn't they? By the way, the Greek translation of Isaiah 53, 9 is lawlessness. He was separate from lawlessness. And then Peter says there was no deceit found in his mouth. The greatest trouble with us is always our mouth. Mark 7, the mouth speaks from what's in the heart. Isaiah 6 Before the glory of the Lord, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. It's always our mouth. And Isaiah says, I don't know a single person who has a clean mouth. We all sin with our mouths. James 3, 2, we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Okay, Jesus was a perfect man. So it goes... We know he was a perfect man because there was no deceit found in his mouth. And so Jesus is the perfect example and standard of how you and I should respond to being unjustly mistreated. Jesus made sure his mouth didn't utter anything shady. You know, you start suffering unjustly from things that people say against you. And your first reaction oftentimes is just to fire right back, isn't it? Oh, what ugly mouths we have. I mean, even if it stretches the truth about them, you're protecting yourself. You look to see if you can find dirt on them. Not Jesus. And neither should we. Now, thinking about things that said or not said, Peter goes back to Isaiah 53. Look at verse 23. 
And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And Peter is here quoting Isaiah 53, 7. I believe he's actually remembering or leaning on Isaiah 53, 7. Which talks about him being oppressed and not opening his mouth and like a lamb being led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that is silent before its shears, he didn't open his mouth. What's this all mean for us? Here we have Jesus before the chief priests and everyone take, giving false accusation to him. An insult, an unfair treatment, and he didn't even open his mouth once in defense. Now you know by experience that's hard to do. Everything within us wants to defend ourselves when faced with that kind of heat. I mean, we're like Paul in Acts 23. Remember that? That was when he said, God will strike you, you whitewashed tomb. He got struck, you know. And, uh, boo. But our calling is not to be like Paul. Our calling is to be like Jesus. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. When he doesn't imitate Christ, we don't imitate him. Jesus could be pushed to a breaking point, but not break because he's perfect. He's impeccable. That's the impeccability of Jesus. Now, why even mention Jesus when it comes to suffering unjustly, when it comes to not reviling and retaliating in the face of that kind of heat? Because he's our standard. Not Peter, not Paul, not your pastor, not your dad or mom, Jesus. Just write it down, Luke 23, 7 through 10. Jesus, it says, answered Herod, nothing. Herod just kept questioning him over and over and over. He gave answered him nothing. So what's the standard? Never return insult. That's how Jesus was. We're going to learn more about that in First Peter 3.9. But notice too from 2.23, while suffering, he uttered no threats. All of the hitting and beating and spitting and humiliation and yelling and false accusations and, and unjust hatred pouring out at him, nothing, no response. You want a response? Here's the response. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus could have done anything. I mean, he was powerful enough, of course, to retaliate. There's coming a time when the Father will let all the evil ones have it, but not now. And so it says in verse 23 of 1 Peter 2, here's how you respond to all the unjust suffering that comes your way but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Present tense, kept entrusting. He over and over and over to the Father. That word entrusting is the Greek word paradidomai. It means to give over, to hand over, to deliver over, to commit. Same word in Romans 1. 
And so the picture is this. In every unjust suffering, Jesus kept handing himself over to the Father. And that is our picture. Just keep handing yourself over to the Lord God. He said, but will God make it right? Yes. It might not be on this earth. But what is unseen is a glory far beyond anything on this earth. Jesus on the cross, right after he said, it is finished, he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. Use this in any way you choose, Father. I deliver myself to you to do whatever you want with this injustice. That's our picture. We deliver our glory right into his hands. He say, will the Lord retaliate for us? Yes. Sometimes he does on this earth. But there is coming a time where it will happen eternally. And you can read Revelation about that. It's very clear. All right, let me, let me bring a close here. I want to close this by taking you back to a picture. If you'll indulge me for just like about two more minutes of this very thing that I'm talking about from an occasion of 1555. There was a pastor in England by the name of John Hooper. He's a great reformer. He became a pastor at Gloucester around 1551. And he would preach like three to four times a day. And people wanted to hear him preach. And in his preaching, it became clear that he was not preaching the Roman Catholic position of transubstantiation, that teaching that says that the at communion the elements here become the body, the real body and the real blood of Jesus. And so he was sentenced to death by fire at the stake. And when they burned him, there were thousands there to watch, 7,000 in particular, and the fires kept dying down with the wind. And it took 45 minutes as he slowly died in absolute agony. At one point, I mean, they had they have people there with weapons, people there chaining, wanted to chain him down. He said, why do you need all these chains? I, I will gladly die for my Lord. He told them when they brought a box ready for him to recant his gospel and to sign his response and put into the box to take back to Rome, he said, if you love my soul, away with it. Then before death, Hooper prayed this prayer. And this is what I wanted you to hear. This is how he handled his suffering. Lord, I am hell, but thou art heaven. I am swill and a sink of sin, but thou art a gracious God and a merciful redeemer. Have mercy therefore upon me, most miserable and wretched offender after thy great mercy and according to thine inestimable goodness. 
Thou that art ascended into heaven, receive me, hell, to be partaker of thy joys, where thou sittest in equal glory with thy Father. For well knowest thou, Lord, wherefore I am come hither to suffer, and why the wicked do persecute this poor servant, not for my sins and transgressions committed against thee, but because I will not allow their wicked doings to the contaminating of thy blood and to the denial of the knowledge of thy truth, wherewith it did please thee by the Holy Spirit to instruct me, the which with as much diligence as a poor wretch might, being thereto called, I have set forth to thy glory. And well seest thou, my Lord and God, what terrible pains and cruel torments be prepared for thy creature. Such, Lord, as without thy strength none is able to bear or patiently to pass. But all things that are impossible with man are possible with thee. Therefore strengthen me of thy goodness, that in the fire I break not the rules of patience, or else assuage the terror of the pains as shall seem most to thy glory. He said that right before the 45 minutes began. Oh, that we would understand the pathway to glory and this creed of the sufferings of Christ and gladly embrace whatever the Lord has for us. Amen. Lord, we... uh, We love you. Thank you for giving us this long message to try to just get this simple point out. And I pray you would use it to uh, guide our souls to just love Christ more than we love this earth. Help us to be your servants in suffering and seeing suffering the right way with the right perspective. Thank you for the example given to us in the picture of it in Christ. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.